Today we're talking about Exodus chapter 16. And I've heard many a sermon in Adventist churches about Exodus chapter 16 on the subject of the Sabbath. The reason for this is Exodus 16 affirms uh, the Sabbath rest, even prior to its stipulation in the commandments being given on Mount Sinai. God demonstrates this affirmation of the Sabbath by sending only enough manna, which we describe as bread from heaven, to Israelites for one day at a time, Sunday through Thursday. So from Sunday through Thursday, they only have enough bread for or manna for that day. In fact, the Bible tells us that if the people try to collect some and save it for later or save it for another day, that it would become filled with maggots and begin to stink. But on Friday, the Bible tells us, God provides manna for two days. On Friday, the Israelites were to go out and collect enough manna for Friday and for Sabbath so that the seventh day they could rest. And what they store overnight, which every other day rots, miraculously does not rot on the Sabbath day. And in fact, the Bible tells us that that when some of the Israelites go out to collect the manna on the other days, uh, on, on Sabbath, that, that God rebukes them for their lack of trust, their lack of obedience and trust in him. That to me is one of the great uh, sermons which can be preached from Exodus 16, but I'm not preaching that sermon for you today. Another sermon that can be preached from Exodus 16 is the sermon that God is our provider. And we see that just even as I described. We see that, that message come through clearly that, that the Sabbath is a reminder to us each week that God is our ultimate provider. He can do more for us in six days than we can do for ourselves in seven days. So God says, I want you to step back and, and recognize that, that, that on this day you don't have to do anything and I will still provide for you. That is a great lesson of Exodus chapter 16 as well, but that is also not the sermon for today. Another sermon that could be preached from Exodus chapter 16, and someone might hear, and indeed the lesson that Jesus emphasized himself about this passage, is that the manna is symbolic of Jesus. Jesus speaking of himself in John chapter 6, verse 41, I am the bread that came down from heaven. He tells his followers this. And then more directly, continuing on in John chapter 6, verses 48 through 51. I am the bread of life. This is Jesus speaking. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This text is teaching us that, that just as the manna sustained life, so too Jesus is the sustainer of life. And while manna came up short because it could only sustain life for a certain amount of time, Jesus can sustain us right on into eternity. Jesus is the ultimate manna as he is the life giver for us for all eternity. That's another sermon that could be preached, but I'm not going to preach that one either. I don't know if you're realizing this, but you're getting a lot of sermons right here in one. So pick which one you like and you can roll with it after that. But the, another sermon that could be preached, and one of my favorites actually from Exodus chapter 16 is this. And it is that Exodus 16 is this beautiful demonstration of grace. 
of God's grace. It's a beautiful picture of God's grace. Exodus 16 begins in those first uh, five verses as Dr. Kellen read to us. It begins by telling us that the people are complaining and grumbling. They're complaining and grumbling. They've only been out of Israel, I've only been out of Egypt for two months. They've only been out of Egypt a couple months, and, and they've had so many amazing things happen in those couple of months. They, 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 they saw the ten plagues and that they were protected and delivered amongst those ten plagues. They, they crossed the sea on dry land, and they saw the majority of Pharaoh's and the Egyptian army uh, destroyed by that sea as it came crashing down. They, they, they time and time again are shown these examples of God's power and God's protection and God's, God's uh, providence in their lives and his, and, his, and his provision in their lives. Even if you just go back, and you can read this later, in Exodus chapter 15, just before in Exodus chapter 15, they, they go, they're thirsty, they're, they're wanting some water, and they come upon this place and they drink the water, and the water is bitter. Have you ever had really bitter water? Where I come from, in the Central Valley of California, uh, if you ever go there, I just want to encourage you to never drink water that has, is anywhere near close, close to Hanford or Armona or Lemoore, California. I'm just giving you this warning. If for some reason you're one of those people that opens up the tap and takes the water and just takes a swig of it uh, without looking at it, that is not a smart idea. Uh, this water, although I don't even know if you would be able to get this water up to your nose because if you don't look at it, if you looked at it, you'd see that it was yellow and brown and I don't know that anyone should drink water that's yellow and brown. And, but if you, if you don't look at it and you just try to take it up to your mouth, before it gets to your mouth, you'll smell just this rancid sulfur. Um, they are trying to do everything they can to get people to prevent people from drinking water there. My parents will live there forever and they tell me, oh, it's not so bad. There's some sort of chemical imbalance that makes your brain think too that it's not so bad as well. Uh, someone came up to me after church and told me, hey, and warned the people in Australia too never to drink any water from Adelaide. So I'm just giving you, so for our friends down under as well, in the States, don't drink water from Hanford, and in Australia, don't drink water in Adelaide, okay? So just so you know. But they had this bitter water, and the Bible tells us that, 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 that God changed that water and he made it sweet. This is just the chapter before, and yet now here they are in chapter 16 grumbling, and they say it would have been better for us to have died in Egypt, at least would have died with our bellies full, with plenty of meat and plenty of bread to eat. They're grumbling, and what does God do? He gives them grace. Because what is Grace. Grace is receiving something that we don't deserve, right? Grace is receiving something that we don't deserve. Without any work of their own, without a spirit of gratitude, the people are reminded daily of God's provision and care through this manna. They're, they're reminded of God's grace. This is grace. They received it on the days in which they were obedient, and they received the manna on the days in which they were disobedient. They received the, the manna on, on days in which they were appreciative and on days in which they were unappreciative. They received the manna on days in which they were rightly representing God's character to the, to the nations around them, and they received the manna on the days in which they were dishonoring the name of God. That is grace, if, if I've ever seen it. But none of these are the sermons that I want to focus on today, just so you know. Today I want us to understand this. I want us to focus on this. We see in this passage 
a beautiful system that God has put in place. And if we understand this system, we will see that God desires to continue to deliver manna through you, the, tr- the manna of this modern age. So turn your Bibles with me to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll be coming back to Exodus in a moment, but 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and I will begin in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God, this is Paul writing, that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this same act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of your Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich." And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. What what Paul here is teaching the Corinth Corinth churches, he's saying, in Macedonia, there was these group of churches, and they got together, and they began to provide for all the needs of God's people in that area. And he's saying to the, to the church in Corinth, now I want you to do the same thing. And in fact, what he says to them is he says, you started to do this thing. You had this desire to do this thing and you began, but it seems like what has taken place is that desire has, has waned and there is no longer that commitment to follow through on this task, on completing this task. Have any of you ever been there? Have you ever started something with, with great desire and you get to a certain point in it and then the desire just kind of wanes? You've had, had those moments? Uh, years ago when Christina and I bought our very first house, we were in seminary and Christina came home. Every day she would take different routes coming home from the hospital. She worked nights at the hospital there in Lakeland, uh, uh, Michigan and she would drive home and she would go by and look at various houses and, and places and I'd always tell her, we can't afford anything. And then she found this house, and she said to me, we can afford this house. And it was a little tiny foreclosure that was built in 1951, 350 Pam Drive. I still remember it there in Berrien Springs, Michigan. And so we went and looked at it, and I, and I saw it, and I said, I hope this is a cheap house. And she said, yes, it is. And so we bought this house, and she said, we can, we can fix it up ourselves 
and, and, and she was so enthusiastic, I should have seen what was coming in our lives, you know. Uh, every house we get, it's, we can fix it up. Now, I'll tell you that she has mainly become the only one that fixes it up, and you'll understand why in a second. But, but I got excited about this, and yeah, I had this desire all of a sudden. I had worked construction one summer. I said, yeah, I can figure some of this stuff out. And so we had this whole plan to do, to do all these things in this house and to make it really wonderful. And I don't know if you've ever seen this before, but there was carpet in the kitchen, and all through the halls and in the bathrooms, which just is awkward to me. Uh, and uh, if some of your houses are that way, I apologize, but it's still awkward to me. Um, and, and so there was this carpet in, in the kitchen, and so we were, I had this great desire. We were going to put in tile and, and, and in the halls and in the bathroom. And so I tear out this carpet, all this carpet, and then underneath the carpet there is a, a layer of linoleum, this this ugly orange linoleum and so I tear out that layer of linoleum this ugly orange layer of linoleum and underneath it there's this there's this uh, pea green this ugly pea green layer of linoleum and so I tear out that layer of linoleum and then underneath that layer of linoleum there's this ugly kind of weird faded blue and yellow thing Uh, and so I tear out that layer of linoleum and then underneath that there was I don't even know what color it was, but there was another. And so by the time I'd gone through carpet and four layers of linoleum, my desire had somewhat dissipated. And a year and a half later, on the day we moved and left the seminary, I laid the last piece of tile. You know, we start things and we think this is what we want. This is what's happened to the Corn Church. They, they're, 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 they're excited at first about providing for the needs, but now that desire over time has waned. And Paul's saying, I encourage you to do this. And, and then he finishes this section. He, he references something in their minds. He references uh, uh, an ex, uh, what God has done. He references that in the last part of chapter, uh, in the last section of this reading. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 15. He says this, as it is written, here's why you do it, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. He's directly referencing there the story of manna in the book of Exodus, in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 16, in fact, turn there, verse 16, Exodus 16, or verse 18, I should say. Exodus 16 and verse 18. The scripture reads this way. But when they measured it, this is the people measured the manna with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And then in Exodus chapter 16, verse 33, the Bible tells us that the Lord, through Moses, did something. So God's giving them this manna, and then, and then God wants them to understand the significance of this manna, not only for them and not only for their, their sustenance, but, but at a whole nother level. Exodus chapter 16 and verse 33, the Bible tells us that the Lord, through Moses, commanded Aaron to take an omer, uh, a certain measure of this manna, and put it in a jar. And it was to be kept with the Ark of the Covenant, with the, with the the commandments of God and the, the rod of Aaron and, 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 the, and the testimony of Moses, the, the writings of Moses, it was to be kept there. And this was one of the identifying marks. This, this manna was one of the identifying marks of God's people. What did it identify? 
It was a testimony that God takes care of his people. It was a witness that God takes care of his people. Not only to them, but it was also a witness to the nations around them. All the other nations had to beg their gods to provide for them. They had to walk a certain way and, and just act just right in order for, for God to provide for them. But, but this God, the, the people who were the, the followers of the one true God, God provided for them. When they were obedient, God provided. When they were disobedient, God provided. When, when they were grateful, God provided. When they were ungrateful, God provided. God, God provided for these people. And, and it was a witness not only to them, but it was a witness to all the nations around them that the one true God takes care of of his people. He watches over his people. This was one of their identifying marks, that they were the true follower, their followers of the one true God. And this continued, God continued to have this being one of the identifying marks of God's people throughout history, even though the manna stopped. Turn to, Exodus, or to Acts, chapter four, the book of Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, chapter four. When the apostles are establishing the early church through, when Christ is establishing the early church, I should say, through the apostles, the Christian church at the very foundation, there's, there's this list of various things that, that these people were, they, they, they prayed together, they ate together, there were signs and wonders done amongst them, there was preaching, there's all these witnesses, there was, there was an abundance of prayer that was done in their midst. There's all these, 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 uh, Symbols of who they were, these, these, these identifying marks of who the Christian church was. But in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32, it says this. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Just as God's people in, in, in the time of, of Moses were, were provided for, God always provided and sustained them throughout. Now we see in the early Christian church that, that one of their identifying marks was that there was no one that was in need amongst them. No one ever went hungry. In that early church, there was no one that said, you know what, I just don't have enough food to put on my table in front of my kids. Because the church said, we've, we've got this. We'll take care of this. The Lord was no longer providing manna from heaven, but now he was providing manna through his church. And Ellen White indicates in a number of places that, that this is still to be a role of the church. Speaking specifically about orphans and widows in, in, in Adventist homes specifically, she writes this. And how does the Lord provide for these bereaved ones? He does not work a miracle in sending manna from heaven. He does not send ravens to bring them food, but he works a miracle. He works miracles upon human hearts, expelling selfishness from the soul and unsealing the fountains of benevolence. Hey, guess what, folks? The, the bread from heaven seems like an amazing miracle, but just as much of a miracle as when our hearts are moved out of our unselfish realm to be more selfless in how we care for others. That's just as much of a miracle. So when you're doing that, you are experiencing the same miracle as a manna from heaven. It's a miracle. She continues, 
and expelling selfishness from the soul and unsealing the fountains of benevolence. He tests the love of his professed followers. Remember in the book of Exodus what, what, what Jim said, that, that what Jim read is that God sent this as a test of whether or not they would be followers, whether or not they would be surrendered to God. He tests his followers, the love of his professed followers, by committing to their tender mercies the afflicted and bereaved ones. The Lord no longer provides manna because he established the church, folks. He no longer provides manna because he established the church to make sure people have food on their tables and water to drink. No one that is a part of the body of Christ should be in need because the body is now the manna serving one another in the name of Jesus. You are the manna. Someone says, why can't God send down bread from heaven? God says, I sent you. Why can't someone provide for these people? God sent you. But God is perfect in the way he does all this. God's system is is perfectly fair and balanced and wise. It's perfectly fair and balanced and wise. You remember what Paul said? Paul wrote this. He wrote, for I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need. It's about fairness and balance because here's the truth. Some people that have very little may think that, man, those who have very much are sinful and their hearts are are, are rocks against God. But guess what? Sin is just as strong amongst those who have nothing as those who have much. And so God creates this, this balance. In fact, in, in Second Thessalonians, Paul wrote this, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. In other words, there's this balance. There's this balance that takes place. My first year here, there was an individual, it's not actually a member of this church, but was, uh, is, was a Seventh-day Adventist, and they spoke up expressing a, a great need that they had, they had no food, uh, they had no housing, they needed a job, and so we came together and we worked on this. They expressed this need and several of us uh, heard that need and, and came together and, and someone provided was providing food, we were providing food for them, and, and we worked on getting them some housing, and then even several people offered this individual a job, and we offered this individual one job, and the person said, yeah, I don't like that job, I don't want that job. Not they couldn't do that job, they just didn't want that job. Then they got offered another job. Yeah, I don't want that job because uh, it doesn't pay enough money. It doesn't doesn't pay me enough money. There was an individual that that was defining now their needs, saying, really, and you discovered that it wasn't so much about need, it was about want. I want it only as long as it fits within this realm. That it fits within this realm. But biblically, it does not seem that, it seem, biblically, it seems that God indicates that, that it's not about want, but it's about need. It's about need. This is to balance out the sinfulness on either side. The church is to be the manna, but the manna is defined by the giver, not by the recipient, just as it was in Exodus chapter 16. In Exodus chapter 16 and verse 16, it actually says this, gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. 
And it seems like an open end there. As much as you want, you can have. But then there's this next, very next line. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. Gather as much as you want, but really it's about this much. It's about this much. God says, you may think you need this much, but really you only need this much, and so I'm going to give you that balance, as much as you can eat. But then he defined how much that was. And what does the Bible tell us? The Bible tells us, which is so interesting, the Bible says some who gathered a whole lot, they never had too much. God had this miracle way of working that out. And whoever gathered little, they never had too little. God had this miracle way of working that out. In other words, it wasn't defined on want, but it was defined on need. And God even worked out a miracle that that was the amount that went in there. The amount that went in there. Church, we are to be the manna for the people of God. Not in any time soon is God going to send bread from heaven till maybe the last days. The only way I said it's not probably any time soon that he's going to send ravens. He doesn't need to because he's already defined what is the manna. It is the people of God that are to provide for others, that are to give to others. And yes, we give outside as well. We give to others outside as well. But specifically, we give, God tells us to take care of one another. And in so doing, this becomes a witness, a testimony. By this, all men, you pray this in your prayer, Kevin, that, that, that as we love each other, others will know that we are your disciples. By this, all men will know that we are disciples, that we have love, what? One to another. Wouldn't it be amazing to a world, as much as they want to criticize and critique the church, and they want to criticize and critique uh, the values of God, if they could look at the church and say, but you know what? There's not one person in that community of faith that doesn't have a roof over their head. There's not one person in that community of faith that ever goes hungry. There's not one mother in that church that doesn't have diapers for her child. There's not one mother in that church that, that can't provide some sort of health care for her child. You know what's funny, folks, is a lot of people get a little tense about all the government programs to support the people. You know why those exist? Because the church stopped being the manna that God called them to be. You don't like those programs? Then let's be the manna that God called us to be. That's what God called us to do, to take care of one another. So I want to challenge us. I don't want you to just think about it corporately. This isn't, okay, throw more money into the offering plate. You can do that too, but this isn't that. I want to challenge us to, in our own lives, say, okay, where do I see a need and where can I be the manna for someone else? It may surprise you in those moments. It may surprise you in those moments. Even as I'm preaching this, I'm thinking about Cindy that's sitting right here in this third row. Cindy was in a grocery store. She ran into someone who had a need, couldn't pay for any of their groceries. Couldn't pay for any of their groceries. Can you be the manna or can you not be the manna? She chose to be the manna. That family was able to take that food. 
Folks, this is, this is what God calls us to do, to be the manna for people. There are churches that we go, how is that church growing based on what they believe? I won't say the name of the church, but you know there's a church that has 10 million members in the United States. We have 1 million and probably only about 300,000 of us actually attend. That's actually true numbers, so we should start praying. We shouldn't critique any other territories in the world that have bad audits because we kind of do the same thing. But there's a church with about 10 million people. and I have a number of friends. My dad went to their school for graduate school. You know what happens when they find out a new family's moving to town? That family walks into a full pantry of food. They don't have to go to the store. They have a full pantry set up. A denomination, they do this no matter who it was. They move to town, they have a full pantry set up. They're being the manna. Why can't we do that too? Not to put anyone else in burden, but simply so that it's fair. And then as we receive that blessing from others, then we also give that blessing to others in return. Folks, I wanna challenge you, I wanna challenge myself, and I wanna ask us this question. Where can we be the manna for God? God's not gonna send manna because he's sending you. He's asking you and myself to be the manna for him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the abundance that you've given to us in some cases, and some have very little. But Lord, we as a church family, let us look collectively as a whole and also individually and say, Lord, where can we be the manna for others? Where can we provide? Let, let it be said of us as it was said of the early church. No one was in need. Let it be true of us as it was true in, in, in the desert as the Israelites wandered for 40 years that no one was lost due to starvation. No one was lost because they did not have enough food or water to drink. Lord, may the nations around us the communities around us see the same thing and be drawn to your love because of the way that we provide the manna for one another. In your name we pray, amen.